I think it's a massive problem. Um, as we've, we've seen, the Home Secretary has yet again made public statements saying to the police, you must concentrate on your core activities, investigating crime, protecting the public. I don't want to see this kind of performative nonsense. And she said this time and time again. And the police not merely ignore her. I think they've offered quite a calculated snub. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with family law barrister Sarah Fillimore. Sarah talks about the legal consequences we can expect when children who have been through gender-based medical procedures decide they want to detransition. Fine, you're 18, you want to cut bits of you off, go for it. But 15, I mean, my heart just broke for that child. We have no idea how she will feel when she's 20 or 25 or 30. There simply isn't the research because this phenomenon of young children deciding they want to medically or surgically transition is new. As a founder of Fair Cop, Sarah talks about wokeness affecting the police force. What right are you asking for that you don't already have? And it can only be the right for my perception of reality to utterly subsume yours and for you to be punished if you disagree. Now that's not a right, that's a dictatorship, that's totalitarianism. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Sarah Fellimore, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Oh, thank you for inviting me. An effective police force is uh, a necessary part of a healthy democracy. But we're seeing uh, the police uh, get involved in all sorts of political activity, largely supporting gender identity ideology. And this is something that goes against the code of ethics. Mm. You know, why is this a problem and how big of a problem is it? I think it's a massive problem. Um, as we've, we've seen, the Home Secretary has yet again made public statements saying to the police, you must concentrate on your core activities, investigating crime, protecting the public. I don't want to see this kind of performative nonsense. And she said this time and time again. And the police not merely ignore her. I think they've offered quite a calculated snub. There's been quite a lot of um, toing and froing on Twitter. I can't remember who it was. Some, some recent conference involving senior police leaders where they pledged their continued commitment to celebrating gender identity ideology and lots of senior officers popping up on Twitter um, in their uniform with their rank. You know, we are the police and we think this is fabulous. And I know social media is not the world, um, but the reaction I thought has been really interesting because the vast majority of comments are negative, derogatory, mocking. I mean, I commented myself this morning, you police with our consent, you don't have mine to do this. I'm disabled. I'd like to know when the police last marched for the disabled, coloured in their faces, did a little dance, flew a flag for the disabled. The answer is never, because for some reason, although there are millions of us, we don't have the same kind of cachet or apparently the same right to be protected and celebrated as those who believe that sex is not real. I don't understand it. I think people are moving through incredulity to anger, and that's going to massively damage the police because they police with our consent, and now they don't have mine. And I think I will be, more and more people will be joining me in feeling this way. 
if there were various issues that the police had got behind, it, it would make more sense to me. But why is it just this one issue, and how did they get to this point? Well, I don't think it would make sense for them to get behind the various issues, because goodness knows how many recognised religions there are. I mean, there are three million wheelchair users. Are they going to get priority over deaf and blind people? I don't think the police should be doing any of this. Their job is to police without fear and without favour. Every single person ought to be able to trust them to listen to them, to investigate any crime against them. If the police are going to go down the road of celebrating absolutely every minority, they will have no time to carry out their core functions. So I would say just stop it. But if we are stuck with this, then they have got to show a little, a little more than just focusing on this one minority. I don't know why it's happened. It's going to be so curious, isn't it? Because so many organisations have been captured by gender identity ideology, and I don't know I suppose I've got an inkling. We're, we're beginning to understand how. It's the why that troubles me perhaps more. I mean, I think we can see that the, the seeds were planted decades ago. Certainly, I think in the 1990s, that showed the resurgence of a lot of people um, advocating for legal changes to recognise men who wanted to be women. And that's gradually seeped into pretty much every organisation. I think what they've quite cleverly done is they've gone for the top. So you get people in the top who support it, that trickles down. And of course, we've seen the climate of fear that's then engendered, the refusal to have any discussion, the labelling people who wanted to talk about it as bigots. Now, that was very effective until it wasn't. But it did take us a long time to wake up. I didn't realise what was going on until about um, 2018, for example, quite late in the day. But I am heartened by some of the massive successes we've had, just basically pissed off grassroots people giving 10 quid to crowdfunders. I was um, checking with a woman who's been keeping a spreadsheet of all the money raised. It's 4.2 million pounds now been raised in crowdfunders. And that's, that is literally people giving five, 10, 20 pounds. We had your colleague Harry Miller on last year talking about some of these non-crime hate incidents he was dealing with. There's been changes to the policing guidance since then. Are things getting better? Um, sadly, they don't seem to be. I mean, I look back on some of the things I was saying last year about lawfare, and I have a bit of a, a twinge of misgivings because I thought things were going to change, and they were changing quite slowly, but I was confident they would. I'm not so sure I am that confident now because the police still seem to be proceeding on the basis that there's this thing called a hate crime, and it's informed by the perception of the victim, I mean, they're all over social media. It seems to be now quite embedded in culture. It wasn't Angela Eagle who was giving some speech a few days ago saying it is offensive. It, it, is, it is an offence to be offensive. There is no human right that allows you to deny the existence of others. That's not what Article 10 is for. So this is a politician in charge of law and policy who doesn't understand what she's talking about. And the police are doing nothing to help this shift. I'm still getting complaints. I mean, Fair Cop are helping at the moment with a woman in London who's put on her front door, a fairly busy thoroughfare, as I understand it, so people are walking past. She's got on her door three posters, A4 size prints. One of them was a picture of two young girls. I mean, they didn't look to me much older than 15, 16, who just had their breasts amputated. Now, we're expected to be exposed to this on social media under the heading of trans joy. Oh, I finally lopped off these useless breasts. She was pursued by her council and issued with um, something, a community penalty notice, which I think has replaced 
the previous warning letters the police would give you. She doesn't take them down. They're going to take her to court. And we're saying, great, do it. Let's take this to court. Let's reveal this for the idiocy that it is. She's been accused of um, causing distress because of graphic images. And I think that's quite interesting because if the results of this surgery, which gender identityology says is a great idea, cause distress and offence, then we need to talk about that. And certainly I'd, I'd be interested to see what happens, but that's definitely the work FairCop wants to continue doing, helping people who are accused by the police of criminal behaviour when they are doing nothing more but exercising their protected right to political speech. So, sorry, that's the long answer. The short answer is I don't really think the message has got through to the police, despite the Court of Appeal victory, despite the parliamentary code of practice. We're still seeing people trotting out this, this utterly risible and redundant line, being offensive is an offence. No, it's not. It's absolutely vital to any functioning democracy that we are allowed to be offensive. This term hate crime seems to get thrown around all over the place um, with little context. Do you think the public, in particular the police, understand what it means? Well, clearly they don't. I mean, of course, if you're inciting violence against somebody because of their skin colour or their religion or their sexuality, that is a crime. You don't have to tag onto it a protected characteristic. I think there were lots of noble aims behind the current law to help those groups who historically have been very vulnerable and oppressed. But it's because they've allowed it to be hijacked by just one particular group who's then sucked all the oxygen out. That's the danger, because that particular group are not being attacked unreasonably because of something they can't help. They are being challenged, rightly, because they promote a political ideology that puts children at risk of very serious and irreversible harm and also denies and is contemptuous of the rights of women. So as Kathleen Stock gave evidence in the first fair cop case before um, Justice Knowles, is that racism can't be rescued. That there's no political, there's no philosophical benefit to saying, I hate you because you're black. That's not something a society should encourage. But to say, I really want to talk to you about this idea you have that you can change sex because this has implications for wider society. Those are two very different things. And what's happened is the challenge to the ideology has been lumped in with racism. I'm constantly, you know, people are showing me pictures of 1960s America going, you want to go back to segregated bathrooms, look what they did. I said, oh, no, we don't care what colour skin a man has. The issue is he's a man and women have a right to spaces where there are no penises. It's as simple as that. It's not the same as racism. It's all been put into one pot, given a big stir. Any challenge, even the mildest challenge, is seen as irredeemable hate. And I know I, I bang on about what was recorded against me by Wiltshire, but it's so comical. I got 12 pages of my tweets when I asked, uh, did a subject access request, and under the heading of hatred against transgender individuals, there was a picture of my dog, which I'd put on Twitter, and I was joking around with some friends, and I'd said, my dog would call me a Nazi for cheese. Now, there is no conceivable way that picture and that comment could reasonably held to be a complaint about transgender people. But at the time, of course, the police were operating on the perception-based recording. Right. So somebody had simply searched for every time I'd mentioned Nazi and reported this to the police as transphobia. 
because that person found it offensive, that was logged against oh, they you. They didn't find it offensive. It I was, said they had. They it. wanted, you know, they, obviously, I feel quite flattered. I'm obviously, they were threatened by me and they wanted to shut me up because they thought, as a practicing barrister, I'd be utterly terrified by being reported to and recorded by the police. I mean, of course, all this is done in secret and I would never have known had the person who had reported me not come onto social media to brag and gloat about reporting me, which is a very stupid thing to do, because then I had my own legal action against the College of Policing and Wiltshire Police, which ended with both conceding that they'd acted unlawfully. So two quite important state agencies were led by the nose by a malicious time waster, but they had no intellectual heft with which to challenge it and of course their own guidance said you can't you mustn't you must never challenge the victim so it's an open door to the malicious and the time wasters so I'm really glad that we've changed the law and I hope the police stick to it because it's going to free up a lot of their time if they're just allowed to exercise common sense and say a picture of somebody's dog talking about their fondness to cheese is not exhibiting hatred towards transgender people this is on on an immediate analysis nonsense so ho hopefully we have done some good and at least freed up the police from doing that. I must do another subject access request actually and see what else is piling up against my name. I'm sure there's something. Uh, the movement to, towards greater rights for the trans community seems to have morphed into something more radical in many ways. And people are kind of separating now you know, the trans community from these kind of radical trans activists. Uh, you've been at the sharp end of, of some of their actions. And I wondered you know, what it's like and, and what's going on. Well, I mean, I am quite a resilient person, which is good. I'm also quite lucky in that nothing really that bad has happened to me. I had the battle with the police, but people very kindly donated £50,000 to enable me to do that. All that money, by the way, was spent before we even got to the door of the court. Um, they encouraged my regulator to investigate me for two years. I had to have a conference with specialist solicitors, which very grateful to the Free Speech Union for funding that. My regulator backed off. So I know a lot of people would find that extremely upsetting. I don't. I quite enjoy it, to be honest. And it had the very positive outcome that it's going to be very difficult now for somebody to go after me via either the police route or the regulatory route, because been there, done that, and got them to back off. But it's the viciousness. They, they go immediately after your liberty and your livelihood. And there are many people not so lucky as I, uh, uh, the, the vast legion of people who comment and campaign anonymously because they know that if a complaint was made to their workplace they probably wouldn't come out of it unscathed. I mean we're still seeing that aren't we? Even after Joanna Cherry getting the venue that discriminated against her to back down, we're still seeing these cases are still having to be heard. The message doesn't quite seem to have got through but there was the very interesting example of the lesbian speed dating event. They, they were allowed to go ahead, goodness me how gracious, the law was obeyed. So it is swings and roundabouts. I think they are incredibly vicious, probably because it's a male-dominated movement and men are more aggressive. That's why I'm probably quite unusual in this field because I display those traits of aggression which they're not expecting in a woman, which discombobulates them, I'm glad to say. But it's just going back to the first part of your question is the fight for trans rights. Well, what rights? What rights are they after that they do not already have? They can't be sacked for being trans, they can't be assaulted or beaten up for being trans, it's a hate crime. I think we've got to drill down to that a little more and remember that what they're actually asking for is not rights, it's supremacy. 
They want there to be a hierarchy of rights and for them to be at the top. That is not how rights work. Rights are a constant dance. You know, you have a right to say something offensive. Do I have a right to punch you in the face for it? We, you know, I probably have a right to get up and walk out. It's a constant dance, isn't it? There's a tension between what you and I want to do, what other people find acceptable. And often that has to be mediated by the courts because we can't agree. But this is a question that people like me put to trans rights activists over and over again. What right are you asking for that you don't already have? And it can only be the right for my perception of reality to utterly subsume yours and for you to be punished if you disagree. Now that's not a right, that's a dictatorship, that's totalitarianism. So again, but they very cleverly manoeuvred the conversation, so everyone sidesteps the first part of it, well what actually are the rights? And we just get these ridiculous mantras, trans women are women, trans rights are human rights, well, well yes but what? And that's why I think this whole mantra of no debate was pushed for so long. Because once you start unpicking it, it collapses almost immediately. So they have to hide behind the mantras. There's also this kind of desire to change other people's words and other people's thoughts. Mm. Um, like you must describe me by these pronouns and you're not allowed to refer to me in the way you want to. How important is it that we guard our, our own rights to say what we want and what we think. Well, it's incredibly important. If you are not allowed to use language, that's going to impact on how you think. If you're not allowed to use language, you can't speak up for and protect any of your rights. That's why freedom of expression is so fundamental. It's really the right underpinning every other human right. So that's why I will react very negatively to anybody from either side who tells me I may not say this, I may not do this, I may not talk to that particular person. Because it is ultimately the complete destruction of all your human rights if you are silenced. And that's what they don't seem to, to un well, no, they do understand. That's why they're so vicious in their silencing tactics. But it's, no, it, it's got to be resisted. If your entire feeling of self-worth depends on how other people see you and refer to you, you've got a problem. And that problem is your problem. And you have to look inside yourself and think, well, where can I get my self-esteem and self-worth that I'm not continu continually relying on other people to scaffold me? And I think this is a big part of the problem. I often ask, well, why can't you be proud of being trans? Why can't you say, this is great. I'm taking a difficult choice. I don't feel comfortable with who I am. I'm changing that. That's something to be proud of, surely. But no, no, the reaction is that we must all pretend that you never were the thing you were and you are now the thing you say you are. So it's a movement basically predicated on shame. It is shameful to admit that you are trans or to have anyone else say that you are trans. But I'm afraid for the vast majority of men, there will never be any doubt that they are men claiming to be women. They are instantly identifiable as men. And that goes into something even darker, doesn't it? This drive for getting younger and younger children on puberty blockers so that they won't develop those distinctive male features as they go through puberty. And that's a whole other and deeply sinister topic. Well, on that topic, it seems people are waking up a bit more now mm -hmm. to the harm that the children can suffer from gender identity ideology and some of the detransitionist stories uh, where children get to their teenage years and don't like the medical procedures they've been through anymore are heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, you work in family law. Can you see uh, consequences in the future where parents or teachers or medical professionals will face legal action on what's been done? I hope so. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult because medical negligence is always very difficult. 
I mean, the test is what were the competent practitioners doing at the time? And I'm afraid, again, medicine has been so captured that overwhelmingly the view seems to be that transition medical and surgical is a good idea. I mean, horrifically, there's a recent case where the president of the family division gave permission to a family to remove their 15-year-old daughter from the jurisdiction to have her breasts amputated. Now, the fact that that surgery would not be performed in this country as it's unlawful didn't seem to give the family courts any pause for thought. It was simply stated there is no evidence of harm. This young man has settled into being a young man, 15, remember, 15 years old. So off she goes to have her breasts amputated. So they can never be restored. You could get some sort of silicon bag and a pouch of skin, but you'll never be able to breastfeed your own child. And anyone who says a 15-year-old has the capacity, the competence to make that decision is an absolute idiot. They've either never met a child or they can't remember being a child. From the ages of 15 to 35, I underwent such significant changes in what I thought was important. I didn't want children at 15, I was 15. At 30, I did. So if at the age of 15, I'd been allowed to effectively amputate my breasts, take loads of testosterone and destroy my fertility, it's, it's bonkers. I mean, obviously, important part of freedom is the freedom to make really stupid decisions. So once you're 18, okay, go for it. You know, you are nominally at least an adult. I know there is a lot of evidence which is reflected in sentencing policy that our brains aren't fully formed till we're 25. There's a lot of very um, convincing evidence. But 18 is the age we picked for majority, so I'd say fine, you're 18, you want to cut bits of you off, go for it. But 15, I mean, my heart just broke for that child. We have no idea how she will feel when she's 20 or 25 or 30. There simply isn't the research because this phenomenon of young children deciding they want to medically or surgically transition is new. I mean, 2015 was when it exploded at the Tavistock, coincidentally when Stonewall began campaigning with the T added to their remit. And it won't be for another 10 years until I think we have a clear picture of just how many people are devastated by this. It's then going to be very difficult in terms of potential limitation periods, in terms of establishing negligence, because people say, we didn't know, we thought we were doing it for the best. I mean, there was, I think, two years ago, um, a law firm was asking people to contact them for a class action against the Tavistock. Now, that's gone completely quiet. I don't know if that's because it's fizzled out or it's beavering away behind the behind the, the curtains. But in America, there's a couple of actions on the way, and I think we've got two on the way in this country. So I hope it's the beginning, because frankly, the only thing that's gonna stop these people is massive damages and wiping out their ability to get insurance, because they are totally of the mindset that what they are doing is God's work almost, because this whole movement has very strong religious overtones. So you're never going to dissuade somebody from doing God's work. How? You know, they know they're right. So I'm pessimistic that we're going to see a lot of legal action, but I hope that we do, because I'm really concerned. It sounds as though the CAS review is going to be diluted, the new gender clinics that are set up are going to be run along very similar lines of affirmation. So that's not perhaps going to be the white knight that we'd hoped. So I'll just have to keep my fingers crossed. I do think it's, you know, that, that's why I'm a big proponent of lawfare, when people won't listen you need to get an external agency in to make them pay, pay money if they won't listen. It's our only remedy. You mentioned decisions. I mean, adults have the, the right to make decisions. Sometimes we make good ones, sometimes we make bad ones. 
the children need to be protected from the consequences of decisions they can't understand. What changes would you like to see to protect children better from gender identity ideology? I'd like to see any um, essence of queer theory removed entirely from schools. I'd like to see people um, prescribing puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones to children under 16 criminalised. Um, that would be a very good start. Private organisations like Gender GP who get around the rules, I think, because they notionally operate from abroad. I don't know if there's anything we can do about that, but perhaps criminalising prescribing those drugs to children would be a good start. No, absolutely, children need protected. The children, you know, when they're very little, they depend absolutely on their adult carers to stay alive. As they grow, they need guidance and support. They're not capable of making decisions about their fertility or their ability to orgasm at the age of 11, as many people seem to think. And that's the really scary thing, when you see the argument being that at a younger and younger age, children should make these decisions because the kids know who they are. And that's, I'm afraid, very neatly tied up with queer theory and the blurring of all boundaries around age and sex. These apparently are just social constructs there to inhibit and they should be got rid of. Well, you, know, you don't need to look very far to see who is the group of people who would most like to see age and sex-based protections removed from childhood. Um, the paedophiles. And this is the problem. They've, they've never gone away and they never will, but they rebrand and they are now rebranded as minor attracted persons and they are seeking the same kind of protections and almost celebration that other minority groups are. And of course you say that, you get branded a bigot and you're accusing trans people of being paedophiles. No, people really do need to listen and listen critically. What I and many others are saying is that queer theory is the intellectual underpinning of the current transgender movement. It's about striking down boundaries, removing them, leaving behind the inhibition. And that is being, that baton is being picked up and run with by some really incredibly dangerous groups. And that's why we need open and transparent discussion about this. But we can't because we're shut down as bigots and Nazis. I mean, one of the complaints to my regulator quite hilariously was I made some comment on Brokeback Mountain. Because yeah. there was someone on Twitter going, oh, this man was so brave. And I said, they both married and had children with women that they deceived as to their true sexuality. And you see in the film the devastation caused to these women. Now, you might have some sympathy for men in the 60s having nowhere else to go, but I drew the line at calling them brave. I don't think it's brave to lie to the mother of your children about your sexuality. I think we saw that with Philip Schofield. Oh, well done, Philip. And I have an issue with that. Now, some people may find that offensive. I don't care. I'm, I'm not saying anything that's criminal. I have a right to have that opinion. Now, that was part of the tweets for which I was investigated by my regulator as something that was worthy of sanction. And I find this extremely troubling. I'm not saying that all gay people are abusers. I'm not saying I don't have sympathy for a gay man in the 60s who had to hide because it was criminalized for a long part of the time. But we've got to be able to have a conversation about these really important issues. Women are not a vehicle for gay men to use as a shield. The lives of those women were blighted. I know it's fictional, but we know there are lots of real life examples of this. And we have to, all of us, be willing to take account of our behavior and how it impacts others. Unless, of course, we wish to live on a yurt on a Welsh mountainside and go off grid, then do what the hell you like. But living in society, we impact others. And I think it's got so out of kilter. One particular group has taken out all the oxygen in the 
inclusivity and diversity debate and are actually advocating for a very exclusive and undiverse society because diversity of opinion doesn't get any protection in their world. And that's hopefully what I think regulators are now waking up to. It's not merely enough to, to make random remarks about diversity unless you're prepared to include diversity of political opinion in that. So hopefully there is a shift, but I haven't been at all impressed with the way the police or my regulator handled the issues against me. Um, and here we are. And as I say, some people wouldn't have had the resilience to stand up to that, and I'm glad I did. You've mentioned lawfare. Um, I mean, this is the, the culture wars hitting the, the legal field, if you like. Can you talk us through what lawfare is, how it works, and why it's important? Well, there's, there's two types of lawfare. There's the one where you use the law to reinstate or reaffirm your existing legal rights. The other kind of lawfare is where you attempt to use the courts to force some sort of change in policy or law. The first, I think, has been really successful and is vitally necessary. The second is fraught with problems. Um, I think an obvious example of where it was vitally necessary and very effective was Harry Miller and Maya Forstarter. They weren't asking the courts to do anything unusual or controversial. They were just saying, here's our basic right. Here's how it was denied. Remedy, please. And all right, they both had to go through the appellate process because, of course, the legal profession is also to a large degree captured. But they got there in the end, and that was every penny of that was well spent. Where you're using lawfare to try and affect change is more difficult because the judges can't do that and don't like it. I mean, the Bell case was a fascinating example of that. The horror of the divisional court as the evidence unfolded led them to say that there should be no interventions of these types without the court's approval. Now, that obviously had to be struck down because it would have clogged up the courts. And it also, arguably, it's not appropriate for the court to insert itself between the doctor and the patient. I mean, the problem we've got here is, of course, we can't trust most doctors because they're fully on the affirmation train. But it's interesting to see where the divisional court were going. They were horrified, I think. The evidence that the Tavistock put in to defend its own case was from young children saying, oh, well, of course I don't think about relationships. That's not my radar. I'm 11, you weirdo. And the Tavistock thought for some reason that that evidence helped them. Whereas I think any reasonable observer would be horrified, and the court were. But then, of course, it goes to the Court of Appeal, and they point out quite rightly the court's gone off track. It's gone far beyond the parameters of what's permissible in a judicial review, and it has to be reined in. So that's an example where lawfare is less successful. But of course, both types raise awareness. I mean, the Bell case was discussed internationally. Well, I think out to, to a slightly lesser extent, as were Harry Miller's and my four starters. So lawfare's got all those kind of advantages. The huge disadvantages are it's incredibly expensive. As I've said, 4.2 million pounds raised for I think about 70 distinct legal issues. It's beyond the purse of the ordinary man or woman. That's why crowdfunding is a game changer. One. Yes, I think a couple on that spreadsheet are general appeals for funding, but the majority are actual cases that either went, won, lost or settled. So you can see it's way beyond the purse of the individual. I couldn't have taken action without people very generously giving me up to £50,000, and that didn't even get us into court. So that, that's the huge problem with lawfare is the expense, but I think if you can get a definitive ruling, both Harry Miller and my Forstarter got appellate judgments in their favour, that is very powerful, and we have seen the impact of that. 
although people are surprisingly resistant. I mean, again, back to Angela Eagle, she was saying, there is no right to manifest your belief. I mean, it's just, they're not, because the case doesn't uphold what they believe, they simply refuse to accept it. And that's really dangerous. So Lawfare's perhaps had less immediate Im impact than I hoped because of this very bizarre tendency from ostensibly intelligent and educated people to simply be unable to read the words that are in front of them. Of course you can manifest your belief. A belief that remains in your head, there's no point in that. Of course you can't be an idiot, you can't abuse or harass people, but then I go back to the point that me simply saying, I don't think you're a woman, I don't think you should be in the women's toilets. That is not abuse or harassment. That's a polite request based on my protected belief that sex cannot change. You hosted a discussion space about gender on X, or what we called back in the day Twitter. Uh, over 10,000 people tuned in. Mm. Uh, you'd said that only a few years ago we wouldn't be able to have a conversation yeah. like that. And do you see that as evidence of concrete progress, that the right to debate has been clawed back? To? Yeah, of course it's some kind of progress, because I think with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, you're now allowed to say a man can't be a woman. I mean, I was permanently suspended two years ago for saying, I know who he is. That person obviously reported me going, he is not my pronoun. I had no idea. This was some anonymous account called Frank. So I made the reasonable assumption that he was a he. I was permanently suspended. And the responses I got from Twitter support were quite clearly, they, they were not going to consider my appeal. I got one response going, never contact us again. Um, then, I, then people started saying I'd been suspended for Holocaust denial. So I instructed solicitors. I had, a, I had a, a shot at trying to sue David Paisley and Kirsty Blackman in defamation. But I was told, look, it's probably going to cost you six figures, no guarantee of success. But interestingly, my solicitors wrote to Twitter saying, you've got to tell us why she was permanently suspended because we may be going to court. The very next day, without any notification to me or my solicitors, they restored my account. So that kind of noxious skullduggery, hopefully, is, is gone. We are allowed to talk about these things. So yeah, that, that was very heartening to think, I think three years ago, I would have just been booted off the platform, permanently suspended for even daring to try and have that discussion, which turned out to be very respectful, very, I'm sure that disappointed a lot of the 10,000 people because they were hoping for a bit of argy-bargy. And of course, that is a, a big problem, I think, from both sides. There are people who like the fight. It can be quite fun. But I was just trying to encourage just calm, respectful discussion of some really important issues. So I'm glad 10,000 people listened to it. I hope they had some food for thought. What are you hoping are the, the next kind of markers of success? Um, schools. I think we've got to sort schools out because that's obviously a very key area. If you're starting to tell four-year-olds that they can change their sex, that's really abusive, I think. And there's clearly it's a hot potato because Gillian Keegan's been sitting on guidance and sitting on guidance and schools have quite rightly been saying you've got to help us you know going back to your point about legal action they feel they're at risk of legal action from both sides of the argument so I think really really we've got to sort out schools and if we can have some just standard national common sense guidance that basically I would just like to see primary schools removed from any of these discussions they don't need to know about BDSM and, and they don't they're little children let them be they've got to learn how to go to the toilet write their own names then you can start introducing these concepts at secondary school in age-appropriate ways. But I'd want primary school people to just leave it alone. I do not accept that a four-year-old has any genuine understanding or wish to transition. 
I suspect that is almost always coming from the parents. And sadly, I suspect there's a big element of homophobia in that. So if a child, especially if a boy child, displays a liking for stereotypically girly clothes and toys, the parents are like, Ooh, well, well, he must be a girl then. Phew, dodge that bullet. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I think would be a key marker of success because it would show that we're finally being grown up about this. I don't know why politicians are so terrified about it. I know it's a political hot potato, but somebody's got to say no. Primary school children, leave them alone. I think to say that the protected characteristic of gender reassignment applies to a child of any age is insane. That has to go. Because that is a protected characteristic applying to somebody who is proposing to change the attributes of their sex. So again, do not tell me that a four-year-old has the capacity to do that. It's an arrant nonsense. So get rid of that. It doesn't apply in schools. Of course, children must be treated with respect and kindness, but they must also be told very clearly, you cannot change sex. You can change your hair, your clothes. You could even take medication and, and have surgery when you're much older, but you won't change your sex. And we need to help you love the body that you have, feel love and worth for the person that you are, because it, it's really very limited, the changes that medication and surgery will bring. And I think we will find that in the next decade. The whole issue of detransition will become a lot clearer, I think. Sarah Fulhamor, thank you for joining us on Precious Thought Leaders. Thank you.